Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, happy holidays, everyone. We are on our holiday break. Our team is taking some much-needed time. We're going to replay you one of our, I think, most interesting and talked-about episodes from 2022. This is a conversation with writer, director, actor Sarah Pauly. And Sarah is someone who I've known for a long time and someone who I shared a lot of history with in terms of the role that she played in helping me report the Jean Gameshi story. And I knew that there was a lot more to her relationship to that story than the public knew about. And that was the way things were for a number of years until she wrote her book, Run Towards the Danger. I was really glad to finally have this conversation with Sarah. There are so many complicated dynamics that go into when it is time to tell everything that needs to be told about a subject. But I'm just inclined towards talking about it and airing it out and exploring it. And Sarah got to the point where she was ready and she told it on her terms in her book and then she was good enough to talk with me about it. And here is what that sounded like. I hope you enjoy this conversation too. Here it is. 
This episode is brought to you by Sean Murphy, Katie Goodwin, Jason Calm, Joshua Renouf, Alex Nazareth, Catherine Mansfield, Jennifer Carrero, and Cindy. Hi, my name is Cindy. I'm from Ottawa. And I support Canada Land because of programs like Canada Land, Backbench, Thunder Bay, Commons. Keep up the good work, guys, and thanks. Why don't, do you want to, yeah, this is good. This is, this if is you're good. okay, yeah, I'm fine. this is totally. Yeah, yeah. Thanks okay. for coming here, by the way. It was just a fucking shit show day. It was like kind of an amazing. Um, thank you for doing it. You didn't have to do it. No, I mean, I feel like this was an inevitable thing that was going to happen as a result of finally telling this story. I was going to be talking to you about it, so. Should we just get it out of the way? Sure. Uh, it might be uncomfortable, but there's somebody we should probably begin by talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, Corey Mintz. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> you and I have done our best, despite our differences, <laughs> to parent our friend Corey. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you chose to raise him with warmth. I, uh, I thought he needed to be toughened up. Yeah, you're definitely the bad cop. Like whatever you and I think of each other, we <laughs> raised a bald, middle-aged Jewish food writer, and he's doing yeah. it. Yeah, and he wasn't always going to be that. Yeah. He was going to be a bald, middle-aged delinquent. Yeah. So we did something. Mazel tov, Sarah. Yeah, you too. You know what? On this, we can agree. Our boy's all yeah. grown up. <laughs> mm, the essay about like being uh, Canada's darling sweetheart child star. You said um, that with so much envy. Envy? There's such jealousy in the way you said that because I know that that's actually what you're trying to make yourself. And so you were just sort of like, it was dripping with bitterness the way you use those words. If I'm doing a pretty shit poor job you of are. it, if that's it's my terrible. objective. You don't know what you're doing. The book is, it's this work of journalism where you're like fact checking your own memory. Mm-hmm. Specifically, you're fact checking in this one piece, your memories of being very unsafe. Mm-hmm. As a child actor, after, I guess, like a lifetime of being gaslit about that, mm-hmm. what happened to you with Terry Gilliam? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a, a big part of my life, this story of being in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen when I was eight and nine years old. Um, it was a famously disastrous production. It was like a huge money loser. Um You know, there were many stories. There was a book written about it called Losing the Light, about how out of control the production became. And I was a kid on this set. And so my experience was similarly out of control. There were a lot of experiences of running through sets where explosives were going off beside me. There was one extremely unsafe incident that happened where I was in a boat with a bunch of other actors. There was a horse in the front of that boat with a rider on it. Explosives were going off in a water tank beside us. The horse started backing up towards us. The rider took it overboard so that it wouldn't crush us. And more explosives came up and went off really close to me. Um, And I was taken to hospital after that incident. There were a lot of things that went haywire on that set that were really frightening for a lot of people. And that has been something that I've kind of carried with me. I've had public exchanges with Terry Gilliam about that over the years. But I think this was the first time that I really tried to give that story a shape and go back and talk to people who were also there to find what their memories were and to verify my own and to really, like, look at this in a more in-depth way. You write about being basically forced to perform in these unsafe conditions, and uh, you were forced to perform while severely ill, 
forced to perform very shortly after your mother's death. You were eight? Yeah. So the performing after my mother's death happened on Road to Avonlea. That was a week after my mom died. On Baron Munchausen, I was eight and nine. Right. Memory is a weird thing, especially at that age. And when you raise this um, with your dad, when you raise it with Terry Gilliam, you're told like, well, you might have felt unsafe, but you were not unsafe or people were watching out. You can't trust your own memory. And then through this process, I mean, it is a journalistic process. You you reconnect with the special effects guy and Eric Idle ultimately says, no, this happened. Mm-hmm. Well, that was an amazing thing because, you know, I had this email exchange with Terry Gilliam about the experience when I found out he was casting another child actor in Canada for Tideland. And I suddenly went, oh, my God, I've never talked to him about this experience. And I've carried it around all these years. And now another kid might be put in this situation. I have to reach out and I have to tell him what this experience is. And I have to tell him to, like, please just be more careful if you have a kid on your set. So I reached out to him and then I asked him if I could publish the exchange because there'd been a Globe article that had really upset me by Gail McDonald that talked about how, I can't remember her exact words, but the tone of it was how accommodating and easy to mold our child actors are. So that's why great filmmakers keep coming back to the trough of Canadian child actors. And there was something in the tone of that that just... Yeah. Something in me like imploded and I went, oh my God, like I have to write something about this and I have to respond to this kind of crazy notion that this would be a good thing that had no analysis in it. Like we do this really well. We make them good here. Yeah. We make our kids really easy to mold, you know, and work in these professional environments. It was just an odd tone that the article struck. So I asked Terry if I could publish that email exchange. What did he say? He said yes immediately. and and That's to his credit. There's a lot of things to his credit. I mean, I don't think he's a write-off as a human being, and I know a lot of people would like me to talk about him only as a monster, but I don't actually feel that way about him. I think he screwed up a lot. I think he could take a lot more responsibility for what he did. I think he said a lot of really offensive things about progressive movements, but he will expose himself to a certain amount of criticism and a dialogue that a lot of people wouldn't, and that's an example of that. So he... Let me publish the exchange. I approached the Globe with it. They delayed and ultimately just didn't print it. I went to the Star. The Star did this like awesome sort of spread with it and like also had other people writing about child acting. Like they made sort of a whole issue around it. And it had been sort of an awful experience going to the Globe because like the editor there had sort of like been really snide and dismissive in his emails to me. And like it actually felt like horrible to be sort of talking about this vulnerable thing. And then it's- Oh, who was it? I'm trying to remember. I actually would happily name this person if I could remember, but I'm scared I'll remember the wrong name. I'll get back to you on that. All right. But I remember he was like, after a week of delaying this, and it was a direct response to an article in his paper, and he said, you know, we'd have to have Terry's permission to do this. And I was like, well, I got Terry's permission before I sent you. And his response was, ah, dot, dot, dot. So I went to the Toronto Star and they immediately kind of took it up and it was it felt really good. And... So there'd been this public exchange, and this is years and years ago. This is, I think it's in my early 20s even. This conversation started happening, I think, because of offensive things that Terry Gilliam had said, maybe around the Me Too movement. Who knows? He's, he's so full of offensive things to say it's hard to keep track. Like somebody redistributed this email exchange and this article from like a decade ago and said, here's an example of Terry Gilliam being an awful person. Look what happened to Sarah Polly, blah, blah, blah. And Eric Idle on Twitter out of nowhere just appeared saying, it's all true. She was in danger many times. It's amazing one of us wasn't killed. And 
it was so astonishing that feeling of somebody, like I hadn't talked to Eric Idle since I was nine years old. I'd had such a good experience with him. He was such a safe place for me to land all the time, but to have him sort of reach out out of nowhere yeah, and validate that experience where he really wouldn't have much to gain from that except trouble was such an extraordinary experience. And it sort of led me to think, well, I kind of want to find out how many of my memories are true, how many I've actually minimized as opposed to exaggerated. And I went back right. and investigated that. And I ended up having a really interesting conversation with the special effects person who had been in charge and felt really responsible for a lot of what had gone wrong, but ultimately had laid a lot of that responsibility at Terry's feet in terms of things that got out of control, like those, you know, explosives in the boat. Well, he talks about Terry Gilliam actually like seizing out of his hand the detonator at a time when it wasn't safe to detonate it. And Terry was like, fuck it and went for it. That is what he told me. Terry Gilliam's quoted uh, in your book from a quote he gave elsewhere saying, I think my priorities are right. I will sacrifice myself or anyone else for the movie. It will last. We'll all be dust. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking to like, I love Terry Gilliam. I grew up loving Terry Gilliam. (laughs) And like, I don't know, I grew up loving Monty Python, loving Fisher King, getting to all of that stuff. But then that takes you to like Orson Welles and like the whole mythology of like these guys. They're madmen, and they, you know, like they they burned every bridge. And they didn't care about their careers. They didn't care about who was in them. Like it, it was the thing was, and I don't know. I guess in a way that I was romantic about art is like this is the ultimate expression of truth. Mm-hmm. It's worth it to tell the truth, and it's worth it to have this beautiful thing that will last forever. I was only spared from like becoming that person by a complete lack of artistic talent. Uh, I know, but you did it anyway. That's what's so <laughs> impressive about you is you managed to take all the bullshit, right, and not create anything except. This thing. <laughs> That's what's amazing. Isn't it? Is you do the whole like white mad genius like jerk thing without giving us the art. You know what the thing <laughs> is, Sarah? Everybody out there adores you because they don't know the truth <laughs> about how mean you are to me. It's true. I think that me being mean to you will only make me grow in people's estimation. Like, I actually think this is my key to being loved, (laughs) is the meaner I am to you. Like, I just can't imagine people won't think more highly of me. But, you know, like, that's that's just like, I'm just shot in the dark. Am I the only person that you could be this way to? I think I might be the only, like, there's, I don't think there's anybody else. With impunity? Yeah, for sure. And, like, maintain your Sarah (laughs) Pauly-ness. Here's what I'll say about... That's before I got into being abusive towards you. I was going to say, I I think that stuff of that out of control, insane, like I'll sacrifice anyone for this piece of art becomes part of the mythology of like why people love those kinds of figures. Like it's partly because they do make brilliant art, but I think it's like we think somehow you can't really be a genius unless you're that ruthless, unless you're that single focus. Like I think there's this thing been adopted by people who love those kinds of artists that that's a necessary ingredient in that formula. And And you've been trying to do it differently and you've had kids on set and you're like, no, there's a holistic way we can do this. Kids, if you just want to take a nap, go take a nap. It's okay. We're not all like making movies here with a million dollars a minute. (laughs) I've certainly seen great artists not have to adopt this kind of out of control, quote unquote, mad genius behavior of not caring about anybody's well-being or who they heard in the process of yeah. telling a story. So I don't buy that it's necessary or even particularly interesting as a sort of component of the narrative of what a great artist looks like. 
I left your book thinking like, there is no ethical way to, to work. Like, this is child labor no matter what you do. Yeah. And, like, we should just use, like, CGI or some shit. I think it's really complicated. Like, and again, I experimented with myself this summer because my kids were so desperate to be on set. And there were kids in the story that was unavoidable to have kids in the story. And I thought, well, given my history and how much effort I'm going to put into making this a safe inclusive, happy experience for these kids. Maybe I can show myself there's a way of doing this that isn't necessarily a problem. And what I realize is like making a film is just too big an operation. Like, yeah. Do I think those kids had a good time? Probably. I don't know. I'll find out when they're 30. They're probably not going to be able to tell me now about what pressures they felt when they had to deliver a line or what pressures they felt either from me or their parents or even the AD that went to get them. Who knows? Like you can't control an operation where there's 150 people who are not trained to be around children who maybe have no interest in children really. Like I don't think that's a an environment that's obviously conducive to a kid having a good experience. So do I think like I controlled things enough so that it wasn't harmful? I hope so. I definitely did my best. I went crazily above and beyond, but I saw how hard that was for me to create that environment Mm -hmm. when it was really my main focus on the days they were there to the point where I was objectively distracted from my job of making the film. Right. And I still don't know if it was good enough. And you won't even know if they like say that they had a great time because as I read in your book, you said that in interview after interview. Yeah. And I can certainly relate that, like, becoming a parent makes you revisit everything that happened in your childhood. Yeah. Though the weird thing about interviewing you is that, especially the weird thing about interviewing you about your book, is that your book is filled with you giving interviews that you later learn you were completely untruthful yeah. in the interviews. Well, this one, I don't think I've told, told a single truth so far, but that's good. we don't know what's ahead of us. Like, I might let one slip at yeah, some in, in, in your endless examination of yourself, perhaps you'll find, <laughs> you'll fact check yourself in some years to come. It's really a trip what happens to your body in this book. Mm-hmm. To grow up in the generation where like Sarah Polly is this like angelic child icon figure. Again, you sound bitter when you say that. Go ahead. And then you're like, oh yeah, you want to know the <laughs> truth about this like child? Like this child's body was like warped by scoliosis, like sliced open repeatedly by various doctors, writhing in pain from endometriosis, targeted by various predators, a uh, fucking fire hydrant falls on your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, fire, no, yeah. a fucking fire extinguisher. Fire extinguisher. Fire Fall. hydrant would be a better story, though. Let's let that stand for this How one. would the for, fire for, hydrant... For Canada land, it's a fire hydrant. <laughs> uh, it's like a fucking action book. <laughs> <laughs> it made me realize that nothing has ever happened to my body. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. No one's ever like wanted anything from it. It hasn't wow. uh, been broken in any way. It's uh, it's just being this like serviceable. Maybe we instrument. should change that <laughs> so you can have more empathy. Definitely, it's been a lot. I mean, the subtitle of the book is "Confrontations with a Body of Memory," and I mean, there have been a lot of reasons to not trust my body and to not feel strong in my body and to feel scared just physically being in the world. And I I do feel that shifting and changing, especially as a result of the concussion treatment that, you know, had that whole paradigm shift in it of run towards the danger, run towards the thing that triggers your symptoms, run towards what makes you uncomfortable, that you have to train your brain to strength by making it get better at the things that it's most uncomfortable with. So I think that that, it made me way more physically strong. So I ended up, you know, exercising a lot and being out and walking a lot. And my job was to get to to have to feel stronger in my body and and do things that I hadn't done before. Mm-hmm. So that's been that's been a huge change for me. Well, you look ripped. 
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Okay, I want to play you something from our last interview five years ago. The other thing that I feel like about that story that for me is really unresolved is the fact that we all knew, right? And I feel like not enough people are saying that. People are saying everybody kind of knew there were whispers, but we knew. Like you and I knew. We sat at dinner parties and heard jokes about how violent Jian was. Why didn't we do anything? Like we can talk about how nobody did anything, but we're part of that. The dinner party joke that you were referring to there I remember that joke. I remember being at that dinner party with you where somebody um, told a joke about uh, things they'd heard about Gameshi liking violent stuff in bed. Mm-hmm. I also remember a joke that you told about uh, your worst date ever, about a date you had with Gameshi when you were 16. Mm-hmm. You've written an essay about Jean Gameshi. You have worked on it for years and years and years and agonized over whether or not to say these things. And to ask you in an interview to talk about it, like I've heard you in other interviews say, like, my best answer is the essay itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reading the essay and reading your book, it's like, it's intimate. It's mm-hmm. like you're talking to your reader. You've left space open for me to talk about this or ask you about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to, I've been trying to figure out what to do with that space. Mm-hmm. I don't take for granted that the listener has read your essay. So usually what I do is like go over it. Mm-hmm. That feels really crude. Um, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with you going over the essay. That would not alarm or offend me in any way. Summarize it then if, 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 if you're comfortable doing that. Yeah. I mean, the essay is called the woman who stayed silent 
And it's an examination of why I chose to not come forward in this case. And the hope is that through this forensic examination of myself and my own behavior after this event happened and also like the the process I went through in deciding not to come forward will kind of shine a light on the experience of so many people. I think the majority of people in these cases don't come forward. And a lot of that has to do with the messiness of memory around these kinds of experiences, the messiness of behavior after these kinds of experiences in terms of friendly interactions after something like this happens. And so I thought what I can contribute now at this late date, now that I do feel ready to handle it, which I did not at the time, what I can contribute is a really honest picture of how complex and messy that is and still say, but it's true. Because I think what's really hard when people come forward in these cases is to volunteer all of the messy, embarrassing parts. You assume you shouldn't talk about it. You assume it'll be problematic. You assume you should hide it. And then that becomes what gets lobbed at you in a courtroom or all of the things that you've concealed, either because you didn't remember them genuinely, which is very common, or because you just thought this will compromise your case. So I thought what I can offer now is a picture of how messy it looks, how complex behavior is after something like this happens, how inconsistent memory can be after something like this happens and still go, but I'm also telling the truth and these things can actually coexist. They're not at odds with each other. It's funny that you played that clip because my least wise self wanted to bring that up with you, (laughs) wanted to bring that clip up with you. Not that clip per se, but This idea of complicity, like I think, you know, you were one of the people who at a dinner party heard my funny party story, which I told for many years about the worst date I'd ever had, which was with Giancameshi. And I told it as this funny story about this horrible date that I had. And I left all the most important and devastating details out of that story. And I think telling that funny party story was a way of making it a funny story, putting it in a box, making it, I think survivable is too strong a word, but making it something that I could live with or live alongside. But at that same dinner party, it wasn't just a conversation about that story. Like people were sharing stories at that dinner table about other things that Giangameshi had supposedly done, which sounded very, very violent. And we were kind of in this mode of like listening to these stories about these horrible things he had done as though they were just sort of indications of what a horrible person he was. We weren't absorbing those stories with the gravity that we would now. Pre-Me Too was a different time and those stories were heard in a very different way. And I've just looked back at that dinner party. You were there, I was there, Catherine Burrell was there, Corey Mintz was there. And we created this lightness around the topic And both Catherine and I obviously had had really horrible experiences with this person. But I think it's important to sort of like confront ourselves too with how we, how we accepted something that was really unacceptable. Yeah. Before we knew better. Yes, it got reduced to a joke or made light, but that was a way in which you came forward or it was the start of a process of coming forward. I feel like you've been very hard on yourself for not coming in at a later point to lend credibility to other women. Mm -hmm. 
but this whole thing would not have happened. When I first got an email from a complete stranger telling me that she had been in a relationship with a famous and powerful Canadian media personality, and in that relationship she had been violently abused, and there were others, I, I don't know that I would have believed that email had I not heard you talk about your worst date ever. Wow. And Catherine. Mm-hmm. And then I came to you for help in finding legal advice mm-hmm. as to how I could report mm-hmm. this story when I was an independent without liable insurance or anything. Why would I come to you? I mean, you, you, you know lawyers, but a lot of people know mm-hmm. lawyers. I, knew, I know a lot of people who know lawyers. Mm-hmm. I came to you because you were like one of the only people in the entire world that I could talk about what I knew about Jean. Mm-hmm. So I just want you to know if, if you have been punishing yourself for not playing a bigger role in this story. Like, thank you. I really appreciate that. Cause that has been very, very hard. And, you know, I did when the allegations first came forward with, with Lucy and with the other complainants, I did embark on an incredibly rigorous process of deciding whether or not to come forward. And it felt like the ethical thing to do was to come forward and to get this advice almost unanimously from so many people that, no, like, don't come forward. You'll be torn apart on the stand. Your memories are too messy. You were too friendly to him afterwards. You, you know, have friendly emails back and forth. And to sort of make that decision based on having, like, a newborn baby and a toddler to not come forward and express my solidarity with those women, even if I had no interest in the courtroom, it, it was a really painful decision that I've lived with ever since. And I I, I do take it really seriously I know I couldn't have made another decision and been able to protect myself and my kids just knowing what would have been in front of me, but it's not something that I've lived with very lightly. So I appreciate you telling me that. We ended our conversation last time talking about like, like what is the best path for women who want to come forward? You're really focused on the criminal justice system and how it could be fixed. And there were laws as a result of this that have been introduced. And hopefully it's better than it used to be. But I was pretty, I made a passionate defense that journalism leads to better outcomes. And it's not like the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. It's like, look, I don't know if he did it or not, but eight women say he did. Mm -hmm. Um, And here's what he says. And here's the story. Mm -hmm. It was interesting for me to see after that conversation that like you pursued journalism as the means through which Mm-hmm. to come forward, mm-hmm. but in a way that many don't have the privilege to do, like yeah. completely control of, you can tell it your way. Yeah. What haunts me isn't that someone isn't rotting in jail. What haunts me is the way those women were treated and made to feel about telling their stories. And that I think needs work. Yeah, Like that feels to me like an unnecessary component of this process. Like, I don't think it's going to be pleasant And I don't think it needs to be pleasant for people. You know, as Elaine Craig writes in her book, Putting Trials on Trial, nor should it affect, you know, like a second rape, which is how a lot of women describe it. They describe it as worse than the thing that they're alleging happened, the experience of being in a courtroom. So I do think that needs attention, needs work. I think there is work being done. I think it's getting a little bit better. I think also things like we saw so publicly in the Harvey Weinstein trial where There's an expert called on trauma and memory. Things are clearly moving, but it's still such a daunting process for someone to speak out in this way. You know, 
Yeah, I think journals play a hugely important role. I mean, none of this would have happened if you hadn't made it your mission to bring this story out. I, I don't think anyone else in the Canadian media would have done it or had the courage to do it. And, you know, a big part of that is your obnoxious personality. It really served. It served this story well, I have to say, like, because you didn't care. Like the concept of what courage is and what bravery is, for me, is really informed by this idea of acting against good advice that has your best interests at heart. Because I feel like in those days, I was very aware that everyone around you was very concerned that you were taking ridiculous, irresponsible risks by Mm -hmm. going after this story, that you were getting enormous amounts of legal advice to not go through with this story. And that given your precarious position at that time where Canada Land was really new and, you know, you were trying to make something happen and taking huge financial risks and like it would have been smarter for you and it would have been, you know, according to the good advice of people who loved you to not pursue this story and you did it anyway. And I, I'm starting to realize that like, yeah, and I, I say this in the essay is perhaps the only worthwhile things one does in life are the things you do against good sound advice. Like maybe that's what, what courage is. And, you know, a lot of people knew of these rumors about this behavior for a very long time and did nothing. And a lot of those people had access to media and platforms. And, you know, it's hard for me to imagine how and when this story would have broken if you hadn't been such an idiot about it. So I respect the way in which you were completely irresponsible with yourself. Honestly, it just makes me, you know, really uncomfortable when you say nice things and it's like a form of bullying. Don't like worry, it'll stop. never happen again. You know, I think you wrote what you wrote mm-hmm. and some fucking podcaster says, well, that's obviously a description of sexual assault as defined in the criminal code. And that's been put to Gian Gameshi and he hasn't said a mumbling word in his defense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe where we leave it. Yeah, I mean, I've used really specific words in this. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts essay and in the way that I talk about it, I'm not using the words that you're using for, I think, reasons that are obvious. 
I guess my question is, I think for me, you know, the point of this essay in terms of shining a light on why people don't come forward in these kinds of cases, I think this conversation speaks directly to that. But it's so hard and so arduous to do so at the time, like even doing this years out, you know, with a public platform, with, you know, a lot of support, it's still really hard. And knowing how difficult it is, you know, my question is how many people didn't come forward? You know, how many people didn't come forward in this case? How many people didn't come forward in the Harvey Weinstein case? Like, I think they're, like, I'm curious. I'm curious to know that. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. Thank you. That is your Canada land. If you like this show, please support us. Just click the link on the show notes. It takes like a minute to become a paid subscriber of Canada Land. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, Please support us so we can make more. Go to canadaland.com slash join. Click the link in the show notes. Become a paying subscriber. Get ad-free feeds. Get merch. We need you. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.